Hello everybody and welcome to the Grumpy Surfer podcast. I'm your host, Ads Lyson. On the podcast today, I have United States Marine Corps Gunnery Sergeant Bo Hancock. Bo is currently serving a three-year deployment here in the United Kingdom, helping teach a Royal Marines close combat syllabus to recruits at the Commando Training Centre. RMCC, as it is known, teaches everything from basic striking and arrest drills to room entries and non-combative takedowns. In the podcast, Bo talks about his childhood and what those early years as a private in the USMC were like leading up to 9-11 and the invasion of Iraq. Enjoy and kick back to a grumpy surfer conversation with my good friend, Gunny Bo Hancock. Gunny Sergeant Bo Hancock, welcome to the Grumpy Surfer podcast. Hey man, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's going to be a bit strange, isn't it? This? Yeah, it's a bit surreal. We, we, we've come some ways since we you know, first met each other. So Yeah, well, we've known each other, what, three years now? Yeah, man, just over, yeah. Yeah, so uh, unfortunately. <laughs> unfortunately for you, probably. Yeah, yeah. I, was the, uh, I was the course this morning, the Royal Marines Close Combat Instructor Trainer course. Try saying that three times. Yeah, it's a mouthful, isn't it? Um, well, they've grafted hard. Uh, you know, it's th- three weeks hard, hard labor, but uh, final, you know, evolution not to take anything away from it or anybody that might be thinking about doing it. It's 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 a hard work. You know, they're up for arguably close to twenty four hours, getting tested on their techniques, their retention, and uh, absolutely ending themselves. So they had a great time. Yeah, it was the hardest thing I did <laughs> physically, anyway. I was about, what, how old was I? 37 when I did it, so... That was strong effort, man. Strong <laughs> effort. <laughs> I was in the clip. Yeah, I'm sure you were real happy with me at the time. Yeah, well, we did shout at you a little bit <laughs> yeah. because you have been a bit of a dick, but hey, there you go. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, that's me in a nutshell. I guess the podcast's over now. <laughs> <laughs> should we just go? Should we just yeah. go now? All right, Gunny, so uh, what I want to do is go right back to the start, so... You know, can you talk a little bit about your childhood in America, where you grew up? Um, you know, how you came to join the Marine Corps? Yeah, man, I'll try. I'll try not to put anybody to sleep. But uh, yeah, I was born in uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma. So anybody that is unfamiliar with the states sits just up on top of Texas is usually the best way to explain it to people. It's the Panhandle. It's the upside down frying pan. But it's like Northeast Oklahoma. Um, I think of it as a great place to be from. Not really a good place to be. It's uh, it's not a lot going on in, in Tulsa, Oklahoma anymore. Uh, I haven't visited in a while, so I'm sure I'll get a lot of crap from people back home now <laughs> talking about it. But uh, yeah, I was born there, uh, grew up there, uh, moved around a little bit, um, down to Texas. Uh, my grandparents, um, they raised me for a little bit. I spent some time with my mom, and she had her own kind of adversities through life, and grandparents ended up looking after me for a while, and I kind of grew up in that military family. Um. I had my own troubles as a kid, um, ended up having a few run-ins with the law, um, didn't end up finishing school, really, uh, and ended up, ended up joining the military. Yeah, but, uh, you know, it's, I think everyone has their own rough childhood in their own ways, and you know, I had my adversities, um, but it, was, it wasn't anything unduly hard, I would say. It's decent middle-class life, really. Yeah. Was there anything that really swayed you towards joining the military? Was it just a family background? Yeah, I think with the family background and, you know, you grow up, you watch movies. And I think uh, 
you know, my old man, who's my grandfather, but I refer to him as that. You know, I never, I never knew my father, so sob story there. Um, but kind of growing up in that, you, you look up to someone, and they kind of set that example. And I, I reckon I probably, probably since the age of 10, always knew I was going to go in one form or another. Um, I never swum good enough to be a Navy SEAL, and they don't have infantry, so that kind of narrowed it down in the Marine Corps for me. Uh, so that's, that's kind of where I was going. And then me getting in trouble in school just expedited the process. So I probably joined a little bit sooner than what I would have. Uh, but I, I think I was always going in that direction. What made you join the Marine Corps as opposed to like the Army or the Navy or something like that? I don't want to say anything as chat as the uniforms. I think it was, it, it comes down to the salesmen. So the recruiters turned up and like I, I was a Navy family. So the Marines and the Navy were always forefront in the services as far as how it was delivered to me. Um, because that was my exposure. You know, there's nothing nothing wrong with the Army, nothing wrong with the Coast Guard, the Air Force. They're all great branches. But I think my exposure was pretty much limited or focused on the Navy and the Marine Corps just based on my family. And then the recruiter, he, he turned up and he had the best sales pitch, really. He was direct, told me what I wanted. Um, I told him where I wanted to go and what I wanted to do with my life. And it, it just kind of hit off. And two weeks later, I was gone on the plane. So, you know, I, like our army and everything does great things. And um, now they've, they're pretty much getting all our tanks as well because Marine Corps has done away with tanks now. So um, I love the army, but my focus was kind of always there with the Marines. Okay, so you uh, went to the careers office, you joined up. So where did you go through basic then? Yeah, so only, only two places you can go, um, West Coast and East Coast. And I'm what they refer to as a Hollywood Marine. So I went to San Diego, MCRD San Diego. And Good weather? Yeah. <laughs> the only the only thing is is where it's situated is uh it it's a stone's throw from san diego international airport so you spend half your recruit training just looking up at planes wishing you were on one of them so it's it's one of those where it's it's a mixed blessing but the weather is absolutely amazing but it's not like you get to enjoy it yeah on the flip side of it you also got to deal with all the heat and stuff like that, haven't you so well yeah and it's it's different being over here obviously in the uk like different temperatures but um, Oklahoma gets quite hot in the summer. You get, you get all seasons in Oklahoma. You get the rain, you get the snow, you get loads of tornadoes. But you get a lot of heat in the summer, so you, you get quite used to it, I think, in America because we're, we're sitting quite lower than you because I think where we're at now kind of like shoots over to like Maine and lower Alaska yeah. as far as latitude goes. So when, you're, when, when we're comparing weather, I always got to keep that in mind. I was like, man, why is, the winter, why is this rainy and cold all the time? It's like, oh, yeah, because I'm sitting in Maine essentially. So I – I, I love the heat. I always had it. And um, I think operationally and as I've grown through the Marine Corps, like I've always been in a hot place and, you know, obviously yourself as well. But my, my duty stations as well, you know, we'll talk about those, I'm sure. But uh, I, I love the heat. It's if you, you want to see me in a bad place, I mean, let it start snowing. Yeah. Tell me about the majority of the uh, the exchanges that we have come over here. They uh, they suffer a bit in the winter. Yeah, I, it's not bad. Don't get me wrong. It's not. I'm going to sit here and whinge about it. But you know, when having the dogs and then just getting them out, it's just muddy. It's, you get used to it after a while. But I think I'm just probably one of those guys that has that uh, seasonal depression thing going on. Like I'm mega affected by the weather, so I can I can get real grumpy. I guess when it gets cold and rainy, and it's you know my fault. So you rock up day one, week one. Oh, we're going to talk about that already. Yeah, let's, <laughs> let's do, I mean, we've, we've all seen the stereotypes of, uh, you know, um, Full Metal Jacket, you know, all, all those stereotypical films, you know, where you're getting shouted out all lined up and stuff. Yeah, it, it, so it's, it's a weird one for me. Um, and like, like I said, I didn't have a traditional school upbringing. So find myself in high school. Um, 
I'd made some mistakes kind of where I was at. Um, I had some issues going on as a kid and you've got the full like ADHD bit. Like, so I'm struggling to deal with that. My grandparents who are, you know, they've already raised a set of kids and God bless them. They took me on for most of it. And I was a nightmare. I mean, imagine being, you know, 60, probably going on 70, having to raise just an absolute tornado. So, I mean, they're just absolute saints. So I started running into my own problems and I was struggling when I got into high school as far as discipline and focusing on schoolwork because school had been quite easy up to that point. I never had to try. So then when I'm actually trying to learn something, I was, I was having some difficulties and I was struggling with how to deal with that and uh, ended up getting a bit of trouble, wrong crowd. And uh, I was actually, uh, you know, those little ROTC cadet programs. Yeah. So I was in one of those. I sat, right. sat there in my uniform on a, I think it was a Tuesday if I remember right. Sat there in my, my full ROTC uniform and in comes, uh, you might see it in the news, but we've got like cops that work in the school, call them like service officers. Yeah, we had, we've got something similar for like the, uh, not disobedient kids, the naughty kids that can be quite violent and they sit in the back and they don't manhandle them Oh uh, yeah. when they're naughty, but yeah. Oh, there's me then. Uh, once again, in a <laughs> nutshell. So I'm sat there in this this little kid, cadet's uniform, essentially, and uh, and watch the uh, the service officer for the school and ask me to stand up and hands go behind my back and fully arrested in front of all my classmates. I mean, it's public record, so it's not like I'm hiding anything. And uh, there was there was my first introduction to the to the legal system um, in front of the whole school and all that. So obviously, no more high school for me. I had to go. With, from there to what they call an alternative school for, for those naughty kids. Um, so I think Pershing, High, Pershing Alternative School in Tulsa, Oklahoma, I ended up over there uh, for a few months. And I decided, you know, I wasn't quite done with my uh, personal adversities and my acting out. Um, so once again, uh, introduced to the legal system. And I had some struggles there. And uh, it, wasn't, it, wasn't an alt- it wasn't a choice the judge gave me, but the, the judge strongly suggested that I uh, look into uh, a youth alternative program they have out there, which is another alternative high school, essentially a military school. It's called Thunderbird Youth Academy in Pryor, Oklahoma. So shout out to them, I guess. And uh, you end up, it's live aboard, no weekends off or anything. So you essentially go down there. You get the discipline instilled in you, essentially military school. Um, you get like drill instructors, drill sergeants down there because it's ran by, if it still is, the National Guard, which is kind of like a reservist type organization we have. And they run you through, you get school, so you get, you know, pucker schooling, you get to take your GED, because obviously most guys there didn't finish their high school, so they need a, um, a diploma, as you were, to kind of get them into the next stage. And they even offer college, so I was able to take two college classes while I was there, ended up graduating quite well, and uh, that's when the recruiter approached me, so they allow their recruiters on, because obviously most of these people are troubled, myself as well, and next stage of this discipline, so they don't go back out. And uh, back to the same crowds they were running with are to, you know, give you a military opportunity to fully turn your life around, educational opportunities, all that. So that's when the recruiter found me and uh, sold me. He didn't really have to sell me. I think I was I kind of realized that if I went back, that I'd probably be in a much worse place than I already was. Yeah. So I kind of took a little bit of ownership there and realized that I should probably leave. So nine days after graduated that, which was... December 1999, nine days later. It was just the day after Christmas. So good Christmas present to myself. Get get, get on a plane, yeah? <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> Treat yourself. Yeah, get yourself down there. <laughs> so uh, on a plane to San Diego uh, with a few other um, 
individuals same as me. Some some had just made the choice. Um, some were some were probably in worse places. Some probably in better places, and that's life. And I found myself in uh, San Diego. So when you hear you know party like it's 1999, I was I was stood there on Century, <laughs> in oh, San Diego. Mate, you don't need that, do you? Yeah. So no, it was it, it was good though. Um, but you know some of the stories you see in the movies, some of it's true. Some of it's you know obviously those movies were made. What Full Metal Jacket? Is, you're talking about 60s back then. Some of the some of that same tradition is, is still in place. You know, they, they definitely need to break you down, take away that you know that bit of self, and give you uh, an understanding of the importance of the mission and other people's before yourself. So service before self, I guess. So you 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 know you're there with. I think we started with just shy of a hundred people, stood tall next to naked there online, waiting to waiting for the instructions to get dressed and to go on with your first detail and. So it's one of those, that, that was the culture shock. That, that was something I hadn't gotten in military school. So, I mean, a lot of it was, was kind of, you know, part and parcel. I was used to the yelling, the screaming, a bit of the discipline, but it certainly went to the next level uh, when I went to, uh, to boot camp. Yeah. I think um, we, don't, we don't use vocalism as much as you do. No. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. And um, I haven't had much experience with um, recruit training since then. Um, we'll talk about it later. I, I, I was a part of phase two for us. So essentially your, your infantry side of the house after boot camp. So I was an instructor there. So I've, I've never really gone back, um, but I, certainly from memory. And then I have a lot of friends that are drill instructors and, you know, it's a hard job. And it's just really two different missions, how the product they're producing and the methodologies they use and then what you have over here. And, I, you know, I see, I see the benefits on both sides, but it's definitely... When I came over here, I was like, oh, that would have been nice. <laughs> I would have much preferred that method if given the choice. Um, yeah, but I think we also do some reverse psychology, whether it's a, 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 a I keep using this word all the time, a Britishism, mm. where, um, you know, we we, inst- we give them something to do or, or give a task. Yeah. And then if they don't achieve the standard that we want instead of bawling screaming and shouting yeah we put the ownership back on them well this is what i used to do and i'd i'd, I'd tell them like i was super disciplined well oh, in a go. nice manner it's, it's yeah. the dad voice yeah <laughs> in a really nice manner and then you know make them feel really awkward about it you know yeah. and i think shouting at somebody will install install fear into them a little bit but I was shouted at quite a lot when I was in training. Yeah. And did I learn from it? Probably not. I was probably more scared to do something wrong than to learn from it and do it correctly. I think that's a really good point. I think there, there was definitely fear on my part. I mean, I was, I was 17 at the time, and yet I, I'd had a bit of introduction. And cool thing about here, side note for anybody stateside that's listening, is like you can come over here and you can join when you're 16, yeah? Whereas... I think they've even kind of loosened off doing it. You know, I don't have many recruiter friends anymore, but they've kind of loosened off. So I joined, like, I was just 17. And so I, I was I was in my fleet unit um, after I graduated, you know, all that fast forward for a sec. I mean, I, I you know, I picked up, I promoted to PFC the next rank for us, and I, I was still 17. Um, so, I, I mean, I, I, I'd been in, you know, been in the Corps. I, I only passed out in, what, I think, April. 
just a few months, but I was still 17 for, for quite some time before, you know, legally become an adult in the States. So I think it's really good that you offer that opportunity um, to younger people because I think that age is – that's where I found – 16 is where I, I really – it was a really rocky road for me, and I'm sure it is for a lot of younger men or and women. And I, I think if given that opportunity before that started to happen, it, it might have benefited me. So I, I think that's a really good – Good program you guys got going on. Yeah, I think if you join at 16, though, my per- that is my personal opinion. I think it's mm. a little bit too young because you don't have any life experience. True, true. So it, it mixed bag, isn't it? Because some people might not want the life experience, experience they're about to get, Yeah. Uh, depending on the situation. Um, and some people might need it, depending on your up. You know, everyone's different, obviously. Um, I think maturity levels is a big yeah. thing. Because because for me, when I when I joined, I was, uh, you know, I went to the careers office when I was 17 and I, and I joined training when I was 17, I turned, oh no, was it? No, I was 18. Mm. But I was still mentally quite immature. So, I mean, and like we just talked about, I'd never been shouted at like that for before. I'd never had that discipline installed into me harshly before. And I think for somebody that's 16 years old, Probably not mentally immature enough. Don't get me wrong. Take prob- it on board. Yeah, there's, there's yeah, probably okay. not, there probably are some 16-year-olds that have had to grow up like super quick, whether it's, you know, a bad family background and they've had to be more mature and more responsible than, you know, some more, let's call it privileged people, uh, kids. Um, you know, it, it's a mega culture shock. And then, you know, the odds, I would probably say, Unless you're mentally determined, the failure rate from those people is probably higher than they are if they were more uh, more mature. But then I think if you're a little bit older and you've got a little bit of life experience behind you, you can turn around and actually go, well, actually, you know, I've had a job, I've done this, I've done that. And you can make those choices when you're in that sort of program within recruit training where you can sort of go, well, actually, I can, um, I can compare this. You know, um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I'm not. I'm not saying don't join up at 16. I'm just saying, you know, yeah, you've got to be careful. Yeah, it's, right? two, it's two different options, and I think everything in life, we we kind of walk that knife's edge as far as where we should be, and you know what works and what doesn't work. And you know, it's I'm in a privileged position right now with this job um, to be able to see both sides of the fence, or at least try and remember what our side of the fence looks like. But, uh, you know, it's, it's a different product. And, you know, obviously, I, I said we have different methodologies um, with USMC Bootcamp. And they've got 13 weeks. And that's not a long time to turn around a good product to then go on to phase two. So they've got their work cut out for them. So it's, it's not me saying that yelling doesn't work. It's got its place, um, especially when you're not getting the results that you need. You know, you, you walk that knife's edge once again, though. Like, you've got nowhere to go at a certain point. Um, so you, you, and, and they do a great job of kind of dialing in, uh, when and where and how much to do it. And it's, they've turned it into an art form, but you are absolutely right. And especially trainings over here is 32 weeks, 32 weeks. So it's quite a much longer time and you've got phase two in there as well. So when you do the math on ours, as far as phase one and phase two, I think we're just like a few weeks behind you guys. I'd have to crunch the math again. So it, and we get a break in the middle. So you, you know, um, COVID obviously is a little bit different now I think um, I don't think they're allowed to go home but at the time I did my 13 weeks which is really good and I got probably the finishing of the discipline that I really needed as a younger man that's your phase one right 
It is, yeah. So that 13 weeks, weeks, whether you go to Paris Island, which is the East Coast, or whether you go to San Diego, um, you get that 13 weeks, your phase one. And for the first 12 weeks, at least when I went through, because they've, they've, they've done it differently over the, over the years. So it was a bit different, like the year before I joined, and then it was the way I did it for a little while, and they changed it again, and they've changed back. So they're really trying to dial in the best product um, to, de- to deliver to the wi- wider uh, fleet Marine Force. So the first 12, 12 weeks, not allowed to you know, talk to yourself the first person. So it's you know, this recruit, request permission to speak, request permission to do everything, obviously. And uh, that last week after we did our culminating event, which is called the Crucible, it's like 72 hours, like three days event, you get like, I think it was like two MREs and somebody stole one of mine. So it was great. It was just hanging out. Skinny little kid back then. Obviously, things have changed. Um, but it's one of those to where you, you, you're really finding yourself. And then you get that Eagle Globe and Anchor presented to you and highly emotional. Probably one of the most emotional moments in my life within the military outside of, you know, any operation or, you know, adversity in that description's Highly emotional for everybody, but it's designed for that. So you get that that feeling of accomplishment. And then now you're a Marine. Now you've got this feeling and you walk around that last week. It, kind of similar to King Squad. Like you're, you're the top uh, top troop on camp. You go back up. You're sorting out your administrative, uh, your administration. You're getting your, your leave at the time. So sorting out, being able to go home, getting 10 days before I went on to phase two. So I got yeah. a bit of time off. So you, you've got that accomplishment as you walk around. I mean, you're still getting marched around. It's not your own program. But as you move around, you're like, right, I am a Marine. And it's, it's definitely a switch. It's designed that way. But it, it feels good. Yeah. So phase two, just explain a little bit about that. So phase two, um, you move on to, uh, so you go to the School of Infantry. And it's got two subcategories depending on, you call them uh, specs. So for us, it's MOS, which is a military occupation specialty. So it's what your job is in the, in the military. And every, every branch of service has them. Um, and whether it's like the Army has letters and numbers and you know, the Marine Corps and the Navy just operate off a of four-digit code. So I joined as an 0311, which is for us is just our run-of-the-mill. It's just straight across the board infantry. Um, so I went aboard and I went to the subspec, which is ITB, which is your infantry training battalion. If you are... Any other designator besides O3, which is any non-infantry um, subspec MOS, you go across to MCT, which is your Marine Combat Training. You get like a very abridged, compressed version of what you need to thrive and survive in combat should it arise. So they'll only do a month of that, and then they'll move on into whatever school they might have because we've got things like you know aviation mechanic, like guys that are going to schools that are so intensive – they even they've got to sign on a longer contract, which is another difference. You know, you got to re up every you know four to five years, depending on what you signed up for. But some of these guys are going to another school that lasts up to like a year. So I mean, it's it's just crazy that you know I I went for two months to get my infantry knowledge. Like, yeah, infantry marine, and then like <laughs> I've got guys that are getting like world class instruction on how to work on aircraft. You know, it's so I'm like, mm, did I make the right choice? I don't know. But uh, I picked what was right for me. But that's that's your phase two. And within that two months, your, your first month in ITB is essentially your common skills, which is everyone does the exact same thing. We all go to the ranges together. We're learning the ins and outs of a rifle. Obviously, you qualify with a rifle in boot camp. But, you know, it's, it's a bit different when you're learning how to employ it, move it, hit different targets. And then at that split, essentially at the, the one-month mark, 
um, all the volunteers or guy that, guys that had contracts for uh, advanced weapons, so your mortars, your machine guns, they'll then branch off and they get they got their own platoon. Um, they're going to weapons and they get a lot more classroom instruction on like your heavy machine guns, you know, disassembly, reassembly of, you know, your bigger moving parts while we're doing a lot more movement pieces. And then at the end of that two months, we all meet up and we have a, you know, combined arms exercise where the machine guns are going, the mortars are going, we're moving, we're shooting. So it's, it's really uh, cool to look back on it, especially as I went back as an instructor and see how that all comes together. Yeah. It's pretty, yeah, pretty impressive. So you um, passed out phase two. When, when did you pass out? That was 2000. I think I finished up all my training April or May. It's kind of trouble remembering. Yeah, 2000, April, May. Finished up training and um, got our orders. So you, you learned last week where you're going, where you're going. Everyone's like, oh, maybe I'll go to Hawaii. And that's like the big <laughs> one. Like, ooh. That's got to be the most, uh, most sought after one, right? Yeah, I mean, it's, you don't, you obviously, even even later on in life, you don't get a whole lot of choice in the matter, but like, you, you're, you're always whispering around as like, you know, recruits here, or, you know, I was a Marine, then obviously it was a private, whispering around, like, oh, where are we going, where are we going? They're like, I, I hear you can go to Hawaii. <laughs> and we're like, no way. Like, it didn't even make sense to me that we would have like, you know, a base. You know, I knew a little bit about the military. I knew a bit about the Marines at that point. You know, you learn which bases are where. I was like, is that, is that a real thing? You can honestly go to Hawaii? But, uh, yeah, it is quite sought after um, even now. But people sit on the fence. Like, some people do not want to go to Hawaii because it, it's a big move, especially if you have a family. And if you're family-orientated, like, trying to get home and see friends and family, it, it can be um, quite expensive at times. If, you know, you're not getting, like, cheap military flights, you know, because sometimes you don't find out you're getting leave until the last minute. But... I loved it, so I don't want to get ahead of myself on that. But uh, get orders come down after graduated, um, and I'm just going over the hill. So we're you know, nothing, no top secret information, but where we're sat, school infantry, um, my unit was like a 10 minute drive away. So the buses just showed up, um, got on, went up and over the hill to San Mateo, and I checked into First Battalion, Fifth Marines, and I was assigned to Charlie Company. So Charlie One Five is kind of where I grew up in the Corps. And it's, you know, I think everyone's first unit probably holds a special place in their heart. And I still talk to those guys all the time. Um, they have a reunion every year. And it's, it's, it's really a great bunch of individuals um, that I came in with and that were my seniors that brought me into the fold. Do you end so, up staying in um, – so, you know, when you go to your unit, mm-hmm. do you end up staying there or do you get drafted around like we do? So, you know, I mean, in the Marines yeah. you get – an 18-month to two-year term where you are, and then you, you get, if you're lucky, you might get extended, but then you get drafted out to somewhere else, and you kind of bounce around everywhere and do bits of everything. Yeah, and it, it is the same, although uh, our, our terms are a bit longer, so you call it uh, time on station. And usually when you sign up for your next draft, essentially, your next enlistment, you'll, you'll serve the majority of that enlistment, barring you know promotions and movings and you know, getting pinged for special things. Uh, you usually stay there about three years, um, which back then was usually about two deployments. So between three and four years, depending on how that lines up, you'll in peacetime back then you would do the two deployments and that would, you know, unless you reenlisted, that would essentially be you, you'd be done. But after that, yeah, you could put in like, okay, I've done my time. I'd like to go somewhere else. So the guys that I came in with, a lot of them, uh, went on the 
MSG programs. So they went around the world and guarded the embassies. So there's there are some really amazing things that you can do in the uh, USMC as far as going around and seeing other places. But usually you've, you've got to put in a few years at that unit, uh, barring special circumstances. Did you get the, uh, the I don't know what you call your... Uh new pass outs or whatever you know we, oh, we join them, and run yeah we call ah. them sprogs but yeah um i think we'll leave some names out of it uh i think a couple of them will be listening to this but yeah so when i checked in on you, know, you go to supply and you're getting hurried around and of course you know you got your salty as we call them lance corporals yeah. guys that have done one peacetime deployment and think they're all that. So it's probably a bit similar here. They're the worst ones, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so salty. I've been, I've been to Okinawa once. Let me tell you the what for as far as life. But no, they're, they're really good dudes. And uh, they, they really developed me because I think I checked in with a bit of an attitude. Go figure. Um, I, don't, I don't think uh, boot camp or SOI fully got rid of it. Um, but my team leader certainly helped me get rid of it when I checked in. So we get all your bits, you know, your, your, uh, your supply issue, your gear as we call it. Helmet, flak jacket, CBA, and uh, I get all my stuff, and I'm packing it in my little three-man room, and I was like, oh, wow, I get my, you know, essentially your own room, but you're sharing it with two dudes. I'm not in a squad bay with like 100 dudes anymore, so that's like, yes, I've arrived. And uh, one of the Salty Lance Corpus was like, oh, team leader wants to see you. I was like, okay. Yeah, he's like, oh, yeah, just get your helmet on, your flak jacket. Like, yeah, all right. Yeah, put that on. You're going to line up, and you're going to check in. I was like. All right, I thought I already checked in. Well, save you the story, but you pound on the hatch, go in, and you essentially check in, and everyone welcomes welcomes you to the unit. And just leave it at that. And uh, after a bit of time, uh, you know, I was I was quite skinny then. Some of these, some of these, some big boys, some big weightlifting guys, and that's one of the, one big differences you'll see uh, between USMC and Royal Marines. It's just like, the, especially back then, the the, the different focuses on fitness. Um, they welcomed me aboard, um, let me know where my attitude stood and some changes I should probably make if I wanted to be successful. And, uh, yeah, gave me some solid mentorship. We'll, we'll, we'll leave it there. Yeah. Along with some few bruises. I oh guess. yeah. Yeah. I, I think that was, I think I earned probably all of those though. Um, but yeah, we, we had small join and run, um, kind of cultures, you know, right, wrong or indifferent. I mean, Especially back then, culture changed. Culture evolves. We'll call it that. Um, there's large drinking culture back then, and, and I'm not saying there's not one now. Easy guys, if you're listening. Well, it's eased off a bit. I mean, it has. Yeah, it has. There was a, there was a big drinking culture here too. Yeah. But you know, like you're saying, the, the the focus on training has has gone from you know running to weightlifting, and I'm not saying people are a little bit more. Um, they aim for aesthetics as opposed to, you know, functional fitness. But, you know, there's a lot of that really. And uh... Uh, That's a really good point. Um, the aesthetic side of the house where I, I think fitness used to maybe revolve more around mission sets back then. I mean, there wasn't CrossFit. There was not CrossFit in 2000. Um, there's nothing against CrossFit. Easy, guys. Uh, but, you, you know, my introduction to uh, – and I'll leave his name out of it because – find me and probably crucify me um but my first platoon sergeant uh was probably one of the best runners i've ever come into contact with and i mean the negative aspect of it back then because back then you were marine you expected to be hard so you tow the line you do as told when told have a bit of initiative and individual actions but 
if I tell you to do something, you better do it. And that's kind of the culture where it was. And I think since then, we've really got a solid fighter leader concept going on. And we really want thinking Marines. We want people to think for themselves, be able to take the order still, but maybe you can contribute something as well. Yeah. Um, especially as you go team leader, squad leader, and you come up through the ranks. But uh, introduction to physical training once I hit the fleet was very punishment oriented. So I got I got to be a halfway decent runner very quickly, but it was not by choice. <laughs> that was not something that was that was my uh, fun to do's. Um, but he used to uh, really take us out. Something happened. All we do is drop our blouses. We'd be in our undershirt and our combats, and then away we'd go. About the it felt like the speed of light, but he's quite fast. And I actually worked for him later on in life as well. And we had a chuckle about it, but he, he was probably one of the, the best platoon sergeants at that time. Obviously he's certainly promoted since then, but one of the best guys I've ever came into contact with. And I'll talk about it probably in a little bit, but he, he actually afforded me the opportunity when I was potentially going to get kicked out of the Marine Corps for some medical stuff that happened a little bit later in life. Um, kind of got, kept me on, gave me the opportunity to kind of overcome that. And the only reason I'm still here, uh, is cause he kind of gave me a chance. It's a good point, isn't it really? You, when, when you're younger, you need, you don't need to, but the older guys, you always kind of have a focus on, don't you? You, you always kind of need a role model Whether you've had that positive role model when you were younger or not. Yeah. But then there's always a guy that you go, he's pretty good. Uh, you know, I want to, I, I want to be like him. And then you kind of set your standards by him. Now, if you end up joining somewhere that's got a bunch of absolute turd bags oh, in it, yeah. um, you know, your example set there is going to be a little bit wrong, especially guys. You know, especially when I was a younger Marine, there were there were some bullies there. Well, you would call them bullies these right. days. Um, but I guess it, that their, their mindset was they had it done to them, so they should do it to you, which, you know, is completely the polar opposite to the way that I kind of look at things too. You've got that, you know, it's easy to have, well, maybe not easy, but it's it's good to have that objective mindset now and it's, you know, what was done to me. Um, I'll just amplify that and do that to the next guy. I think that resides quite hard in military culture, especially when it comes to training. Like, oh, you know, I did this and this. Okay, well, let's add this on. Where if you don't understand the methodology, you've changed it now, and, and now you might not be achieving the same goal or aim that that initial drill or training exercise might have had. So you just it, it just turns into one-upmanship, doesn't it? Yeah. But I, I had a pretty much a, a really good blend. I had some really good guys when I checked in that I looked up to. I had some really good team leaders. And, I mean, they put up with me. I was a skinny kid with a mouth. Um, you know, I, and I was trying to make my way. You know, I, was, you know, I had guys that were I was serving alongside that were some heavy hitters. They were just big dudes. They did really well. Whereas in you know, aspects, I was still struggling you know, coming up through. I'm not going to say I checked in to Charlie 1-5 and all of a sudden I'm best thing since sliced bread. I certainly wasn't. Um, so I had some guys to my left and right uh, that really helped me along the way. And uh, I think I've been in been in the fleet, what, two months? I pinned on private first class, which is E2 for us as our next rank, which you get you get after six months. Um, some people get it in, you know, boot camp. Some people sign on, you know, by doing X amount, getting other people to join. So there's a couple different ways you can pick up those first couple ranks. But I think I'd been in about two months. 
and we're doing a fast roping exercise in the backyard. So we're about to go into one of our urban training facilities uh, there on Pendleton. And uh, we're doing, we're staged out in the backyard, which is a massive open area. And Charlie Company is a helo, co- uh, a helo company, if I hadn't mentioned that before. And we've done a, a slick run. So we just, you know, Cammy's fast roping on the bottom of the CH-46 twin rotor. Um, don't use them anymore. So we used to refer to them as the frogs. So we don't use that helicopter anymore. And I've uh, done the first run great. You know, you put your gear on, you put your kit on. You do the second run. It's like, all right, you know, feeling a bit Hollywood here. This is awesome. And obviously, you go out of the tower. You get some competency before that. So it's not like I was thrown to the wolves. Well, third run, you know, you put your pack, your Bergen on. Uh, I was a saw gunner so uh, at the time. So that's, you know, a bit more automatic, you know, you know, light machine gun, squad automatic weapon. There's different schools of thought there. And uh, full gear, go up, going down. It's my turn to go out the hell hole, which is in the middle of the bird. And uh, I get stuck get stuck there, Pat gets hung up, and I'm, all right, what do I do next? I'm looking at, you know, no one's really kind of some other stuff going on. People are focusing elsewhere, good, bad, or indifferent. And I'm, I'm trying to self-clear, which is probably not the best thing to do. Probably should leave that to the professionals. And uh, next thing I know, I'm doing about the speed of light down the rope. And because of the weight, and because like I said, I was a skinny kid, I was, I was just trying to reacquire the rope and just get a clamp on it so I could get a break. And that was like probably the last thing I remembered. I come to, I'm on the ground, got the rope flapping about, hit me in the face. And uh, our one of our machine gun attachments, because at this point in time, I was still just a straight, um, call them crunchies. I was just a normal 0311, uh, obviously, uh, saw gunner for the squad. And he's, he's kind of like slapping me awake. And I was like, hold on, why am I asleep? Uh, you know, sleeping on the job. But I realized my helmet's gone. It's probably about 10, 15 feet away. My weapon's gone into pieces. Um, it's held together by pins, so that's gone. It's in pieces over there. And my only thought is, well, I should really get up. I need to get out of here because the next guy's going to come down the rope. And I'm, I'm in the way. I'm a hindrance. So I just try to sit up. And something's, something's, not, something's not right. So uh, it turns out like I couldn't, I couldn't feel my legs. And uh, long story short, eventually I could. Let's just get that out there now. <laughs> but uh, I, I couldn't initially stand up on my own. So uh, that guy, we just refer to him as Anderson, he helps me up and uh, get somebody else helping me up. I was like, no, no, I've got this. I've got this. I can stand on my own two feet, right? So like, all right, well, then move your butt. Get out of here. Uh, giving me words of encouragement. I don't know if I can say on here or not. So I, I, I get – right. Oh, cool. That makes life easier for me. I've been biting my tongue this whole time. Thanks. Now you tell me. No. It's not part of the brief. Uh, so I get moving, right? I take one, what I thought was a step, which wasn't. I just essentially face planted because uh, what, what it turns out was I had a compression fracture, which pinched a few nerves, and I lost a bit of my height um, in the long run. But I, my, it wasn't connected. So the legs weren't working. They weren't getting the signal they need to be getting. And uh, – Essentially, at the moment, I was paralyzed momentarily, not momentarily, but for a short period of time. And you just see this little dot getting bigger and bigger in the distance as it's running towards me. And it's the corpsman just flapping his arms saying, don't fucking touch him. It's like, oh, cool. They get me in, get me out to the hospital. Well, where we're at, because Pendleton's quite big. It's like bigger than the state of Rhode Island. Like It's it's quite a large uh, base. They get me in an ambulance and they take me to a civilian hospital. 
uh, lights blaring, this, that, and the other, and uh, get me out there. And I'm, keep in mind, I am still a 17-year-old kid that is duct tape to a spinal board because they couldn't think of what else to do to keep me immobilized at the time. Go figure that Corman didn't have a, a spine board at the time, but those, those are the times we were in. So I'm duct taped to this spine board, and they get me to uh, Mission Viejo Hospital, which is a really nice town if you've not been. Good surfing there. You'd like it. And uh, they just leave me there. So I'm in, I'm in this waiting room for probably about five minutes and just eyeballs only trying to look around. I'm like, uh, any danger? Hello? Hello? And uh, so someone came up. Oh, you know, what are you doing here? I fell out of a helicopter. I'm like, oh. And that kind of sparks alarms. It's probably, I, I could have used different verbiage to maybe calm that down a bit. So that ensued a little bit of a panic. They get me in. They do whatever scans. I mean, I can't even remember. And I was just at that time starting to feel a little bit of pain because at that point I was like, oh, I'm, I'm perfectly fine. You know, obviously, you know, something's gone wrong here, but I'm all right. But the nurse comes out and her, I don't remember her name, but her bedside manner was horrible because <laughs> the first word she came out and told this young 17 year old kid who couldn't feel his legs and was duct taped to spinal boards. Oh, honey, you, you broke your back. I was like, oh, and. Here come the emotions. Here comes the waterworks. They're so like, oh, oh God, I'm not, I'm not going to walk again. Uh, long story short, that that didn't happen. Um, but it, it took about another day. Like, I don't know why it took so long. Um, but I started to get my feeling back. There's a lot of pain. Um, everything started firing as it should be. Um, it compression fracture, just how, how it fell, I'm not sure. But essentially, the pack saved the rest of my back because the packs we're using at the time, the kidney pad, drove up and isolated that and gave me a compression fracture. Um, so then I was on light duty for like a, a, a very long time, which was not a good thing back then. I mean, we've had a massive culture change, but um, back then you just did not go to medical. You did not want to be seen to that guy to be taking away from the unit, to be sat in the back, just chilling out. So it was very, very negative culture. And I think it's probably because there's some people that take advantage of it. You know, you, you, them, you know, light duty is what we call it you become a light duty ranger or warrior then you get a bad reputation but i was i was that way for for some months and um kind of over here we have to sit boards and all that and make sure you're still medically qualified or you're going to hit the road and i was coming up for a board um they ended up sticking me in the company office uh, which a lot of guys that know me from back then have a chuckle about this so i get stick and i know nothing of computers and I mean, back in 2000, a lot of people did. So here I am, like, banging keys in 2001. They, f they felt that I was fit enough to go on deployment. Um, so I got to go to Okinawa. Um, so we, we do a rotation out there in, in Japan. And I found myself in the company office. It was probably the worst thing, best slash worst thing that's ever happened to me. Because uh, as, a, as a young dude at that age where I was, I got to take a step back and see the other side of the house, like seeing how the officers and senior staff NCOs are actually managing and how things work. So that was kind of cool to see. So it was an opportunity for that, for that aspect. But I was coming up on my medical board and I, I told you earlier, my platoon sergeant at the time, um, he's like, right, uh, you, you're going to, you're going to get out process because there's, you, you can't, can't do a PFT, which is our physical fitness test. If you can't do that, then you're not fit at that time. It was, it was a different time. Nowadays you can still stay on until your injury and all this other stuff is fixed. 
you can get rehabbed. But back then, like, oh, well, you, you can't operate as a Marine. You didn't have, like, wounded warrior. You didn't have any of that stuff. Not that I would necessarily would have qualified. But there, we didn't have the same resources we had today. So he's like, right, can you do a PFT? Keep in mind, like, I'd probably been doing things as an underage Marine. Like, shouldn't have been doing. My, my fizz routine, my workout routine had not been great because of the back pain. And, you know, we're in Okinawa and there's not a whole lot to do out there if you if you can't put weight on. You either do weights or you join the drinking culture. Or if you're smart, which I wasn't, then you you take advantage of some of the other things like uh, scuba diving and hiking. And you, you do smart things, which I think I visited one castle when I was there and that was it. So he's like, right, well, you got you got a fitness test tomorrow. you got to pass it. I was like, oh, brilliant. Um, I showed up and probably did the most painful, ugliest fitness test I'd ever done in my life. And I, I, I got a first class by one point. So I ran a 226 and I was able, I was able to stay on and I was able to stay in the core. And so he gave me that opportunity, which I essentially you know, disregarded medical, shredded my light duty shit and said, I'm not going to do this anymore. So never had surgery on it and, uh, wonders of the human body. It just kind of you know, sorted itself out, and here I am today. It's probably not done you any favors for the future, though, has it? Uh, there might have been some follow-on effects that uh, have come down the pipeline, you know, hip impingement, one leg being longer than the other, and really good knee joint. No pain down there at all, so that's great. So um, when, did you, uh, when, did you get, when did you do your PFT and get reinstated? So that was, on that deployment, that's 2001, and I want to say that was May time frame because I'd done a few months over there before it came down to it. And uh, he gave me the opportunity at that point, like, right, good to go. That happened. And now I'm fit to train again. I'm fit to do that. And we're coming, uh, we're about to come back. We can come back off that deployment. So this is still, this is 2001. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think we can kind of see what's coming yeah, see what coming right up here. So uh, I, at this point, I'd forced myself to learn about computers. And at that time, the way rotations worked, at least in Mateo for all the 5th Marines, is you do a workup, which is, I think it was like six months. You deploy six months. You come back. You're on guard duty for six months. So we come back. We took guard duty. And what that is is essentially you stand sentry on the armory and all these little posts that we had at the time. And we've kind of changed business that way. But you essentially guard the essential things and you run the guard room. So if something happens on camps, you know, you're like a react force. So it was a guard room. But because I'd learned about computers in that day and age, still people are still using AOL, which is unheard of now. Um, I got myself a cush job in the, in the guard room doing the morning report. And all I had to do was because I could hit, you know, 10 keys and hit enter. And the staff sergeant that was there couldn't got myself a cush job. But uh, September time frame, find myself there, and uh, yeah, going into going into the guard room. Business is normal. I'm sitting in the morning report and I'm looking around, and bit of movement where you know it's not many people on camp. This is kind of a an easy routine that we find ourselves in, and uh, get over there. My buddy comes running out of the guard room, and he's like, uh, you know, the goddess. I mean, how are you supposed to respond to that? You know, I, obviously I just turned 18, just coming back off my first appointment. Like, what do you mean they got us? And uh, I walked in the guard room uh, just in time to see the, they had this old, old, like 
projection TV mass. It's probably twice as big as it needed to be. TV, where if the sun hits it, you can't see it. It's a weird glare. I walked in just in time to see the uh, second plane hit the uh, hit the towers. So it was like, you know, different. every generation has its tragedy. Like, you know, ask older generation, where were you when you know, Kennedy was mm-hmm. assassinated? Where were you, the moon landing? Where, you know, all these key mark events. I think 9-11 uh, is probably generationally one of the one of the big ones. You're like, you know, you look back and where were you? Yeah. So that was that was me. Where where were you at? I was uh, so I passed out of training in May two thousand and one. Mm. May two thousand and one, earlier that year, and uh, I was on leave. I think. I, well, I was. I was on leave, and I was at my. Uh, I was at uh, an old school friend's house, and uh, his mum phoned the house up to watch him. We used to watch loads of Chad films like Blade yeah. and Bloodsport and stuff like that. You know, all the classic old uh, cliche Good ones. films. What are you on about? <laughs> Oscar award winning. Yeah, Come that's on. Why, that's why I joined the Marines. <laughs> and uh, his mom ran a pub in my local town in Redditch. And uh, she rang up the house and said, turn on the news and turn on the news. And just like you, when you walked into the air, uh, I was like, ah, boom. Plane flew into the building and I was like, ah, yeah. And then my initial thought was, I know where I'm going to be in a few months' time. Well, you're smarter than me because I, I didn't, I didn't know what thought to think. And then obviously the scenario that that oh, day, up. yeah, yeah, yeah. And that day just obviously um, got worse, and it's by no means making light of the day. It's just you, you remember back and try and remember what was in your head. And I just, I was absolutely dumbfounded. An 18 year old kid didn't have arguably a whole lot of life experience behind me. I, I didn't have that, that foresight to be like, Oh yeah, well, you know, clearly I'll be on deployment. Things were going through the roof around camp. People are starting to patrol, pull people out of cars. Like, dude, I work here. And it, obviously the reaction was over the top. Well, you like being over the top anyway. Don't yeah, you? Being there. Maybe a little bit. Um, uh, you know, I, I don't think you can really comprehend unless you're an American. It, because I, I, without sort of stereotyping, here we go. Amer- no, no, no. Without stereotyping Americans, um, the majority of the population are quite patriotic, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, there's no two ways about that. I would say the majority, and obviously times are changing, and you've got you know injustices and horrible things going on, you know, in the country. And I mean, there's no two ways about that. But you know, the the response is one side or the other. I'm not going to get involved in that. But. I mean, I mean, my point my point being is that the response to what everybody thought and felt during that time. Oh, that time, yeah. It, even 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 though it would you say it was over the top? I don't know, but nothing could ever happen like that before in history bar the Second World War. You had the mass atrocities and stuff like that yeah. that happened there, or you know, the Pearl um, Harbor. Or in some, you know, the bombings other, as well. So yeah, we had, you know, the bombings in Beirut. We had a few others. There's yeah. a few builder, but to that extent, where no. somebody attacks a Western major city, like, multiple, like, as well, yeah. like like New York, like the Pentagon, mm. um, and the other places that they uh, f- f- yeah, tried to fly planes yeah. into, um, you know, we we had we had the bombings in London. Yeah. Um, they, they weren't on the mass casualty scale like 9-11 was. But I think the whole point of that really was is that 
you know, when those towers fell, they not only took out all the people that worked there, but it was the surrounding environment. And it was just the first responders, everyone. Yeah. And it was the sheer neck of it as well. It's, it's hard to put into words, the feelings then. And I'm, and I'm not, once again, it wasn't me saying that the country went over the top. It's just what we were doing on camp then was all, we didn't know what to do. How, how do you respond to something that happened? You know, and so the security ramped up and our actions were, might've been a bit over the top, but as a country, I don't, there's probably not been a time other than, like you said, World War Two, because even you know Korean War, like yeah, a bit of motivation and patriotism behind it. Arguably, not a whole lot for Vietnam that probably caused its own problems. But when that happened, I don't think America probably had a cohesive time, a pa- like you said, a patriotic time, like it had during that period. And I mean, and you see the memes on like the internet now, and it's like you promised you'd never forget, and you know, it's where we were, arguably with, you know, hand in hand, united, a common goal, and that's what that's what happens when you have a, a travesty like that. It unites, and you, you unite against it, you stand against it, whatever that is. And I, I think you're right. I think where we were as a, as a country was was quite unified, and maybe not so much anymore. I got to pause it. I got to go for a piss. <laughs> Fair one. Right, we're back. Um, okay, September eleventh. Then um, Twin Towers got hit. Yep. You were in your, uh, you know, you're in your depot, and you've gone in and watched on the TV. Yep. You know, what, you know, what happened for you after that? Uh, well, we started ramping up. We re- originally thought we were going straight away. You know, we were getting spun up. Um, and we were doing training, getting ready. In two thousand two, we thought we were going to go. Um, a different unit got to go. So, I mean, we pretty much staged, ready to go, and someone else got the call. So we stood down and ended up doing some other training, doing some some mountain warfare training, stuff like that. And then we started to hear whispers that something else might be going on because, obviously, this is this is all Af- the early days of Afghan at this point, which we, we thought we were going to be involved in. Obviously, we weren't. And we start hearing other whispers, and we start noticing the training's changing a little bit. And uh, start hearing whispers about Iraq and you know, stuff going on with that. And uh, it gets to, I think it was probably about November, October of 2002, I think it was. Is we pretty much get the word like, hey, this is happening. We're, you know, change gears now. We're going into Iraq. And uh, so you start getting that and, you know, really start grinding in the training. And it's, it's an interesting point at this time. Um, just kind of me getting from 2001 to 2002. So I mentioned I, I kind of was a, a computer guy. I wasn't a computer guy, but I ended up in a company office doing a computer job. And uh, I wasn't happy with that, especially after what happened. You know, no, no one, I don't think, wants to be stuck behind a computer um, after 9-11. So, right, I need to get out of here. So I ended up actually taking a, a, a slap on the wrist because I, I sandbagged a little bit of work and those listening like know it for fact. So I ended up uh, kind of sandbagging work a little bit to get kicked out of the company office. Um, so I messed up a few details and uh, I get the boot back to uh, a rifle platoon. They were, they were kind of full up. So they sent me over to uh, machine guns. So I think after two years in the Corps, I finally found my home, what felt like my home. And I really, really love my machine gun brothers. Like I, I fit in. It was, it's the only place I probably really felt home. 
um, as a younger younger Marine. So I was a Lance Lance Corporal at the time. You guys call him Lance Jacks, but Lance Corporal at the time. Now I got promoted when I was on that Okinawa deployment. Got my E3 and uh, move over to machine guns. I'm learning more of the ins and outs of that. Obviously, I kind of spent time on it, but they really took me to school and they took me in as part of their own. So I ended up uh, being a part of a machine gun team um, with a, a, some real characters, some really good people uh, in machine guns. And guys I still talk to today um, really kind of showed me the ropes. And uh, I had a, a really good, really good friend at the time of mine. He was, uh, keep in mind, what? I'm 18 at the time. It's 2002. Take that back. I'm now 19. And I think my, I think at the time I'll mess up his age. You know, pick me up for a little bit. I think he's like 26. And uh, I end up, he ends up being the gunner as it works. So he's, because he has the experience, he works the gun because he knows more about the gun than I do. He's been to school for long. He's, he's much more experienced as a machine gunner than I am. Somehow I end up as a team leader. So now I'm trying to, which is essentially you're directing fire. So it, it, it sounds cooler than what it is. You're just trying to make sure that the rounds are, you're a spotter essentially. And then you got your ammo man, which we ended up not having one uh, when we went in. But he's 26. What am I going to tell this dude? This guy's got way more life experience, um, but ended up learning as much as I could ever try and teach him. And me, me and him developed a really good relationship um, during the subsequent deployment. And then also when we got back as far as, um, how he ended up really taking over because uh, I ended up, well, we'll talk about that in a minute, but he, he really just took me to school. Well, he and I ended up um, as part of this machine uh, machine gun section, you get kind of tasked out. So every, every platoon will get a squad, which is two teams. So they get two guns because they obviously are employed in pairs. Pick them deep, boys, I remember. <laughs> um but it comes January time frame and it's, you know, we're getting time to get on the plane. So we're working towards it. Uh, it's January, February. It's hard to remember, boys. We end up uh, flying over stage in Kuwait, LSA-5. Um, so, because you, you were there. Yeah, Yeah, I did the invasion. Yeah, yeah, same. So where'd you guys end up staging up? Because um, there was Brits with us, but I think if my memory serves, it was Royal Fusiliers. Yeah, I know, I know. No, Not Royal uh, Marines. Yeah, it, was, it was probably um, no. I wasn't. I wasn't staged in Kuwait um, for the initial invasion. I was over in Cyprus. Ah, oh, yeah, okay. Uh, and then we flew into like um, the Al Jazeera and gotcha. did, did some stuff around there. Gotcha. Yeah. So uh, we get staged up in this LSA, and there's all gas drills, and you know you've got chickens out there trying to detect gas. Well, they just die because of the dust. So everyone's freaking out, and you, you we kind of established almost like a routine there of training. Are we going to go? Is this going to be another you know desert storm? Is this going to be another you know ninety hour? You know, we've all seen Jarhead, and like well, Jarhead hadn't come out yet, but if you look at it now. That's what you didn't want life to be like. It's just that that horrible routine. And I think back to it now, and we ended up having like a sports day, which seems like weird. Like we're miles away from Iraq. We have a sports day. Somehow they've sourced like pizza. I mean, you've been on nothing but rations. We got pizza. We got mail for the first time. Like looking back, it's all the, all the signs are clear. But at the time, you're like, oh, this is a really great day. I'm having a blast. We had like a, a squad comp, which we won, which mean like, so me and, uh, me and my gunner won. 
I'll just go ahead and name drop you, Custer. You're out there. Um, so we won. So we didn't have Century that night. So we're like, we didn't fire watch. We're like, yes. Well, I spent all, all night writing replies to my letters instead of getting sleep like I should have got. Well, I'll get head down, get my, you know, getting my sleeping bag. And about an hour later, just lights come on. Well, we're going. We're going. Grab your crap. We're going. I was like, well, that's great. There goes all the sleep I should have got. <laughs> so I'm, I'm trying to pack all my crap um, and get to the Amtrak's. We then push forward closer to the border and uh, get staged up a few miles away. We're digging, you know, massive, you know, U-shaped fighting positions, you know, machine gun positions, staging up, ready to go. And then obviously we end up uh, crossing uh, to one of the craziest, craziest times. I think most guys that were involved with that probably experienced. I mean, because you go from peacetime, peace, I mean, unless you've gone to Afghan, obviously, but for so for someone who didn't go to Afghan before Iraq, it's it's kind of what you felt like you trained for the entire time because as an infantryman, you never actually get to do your job unless you go to war. You just train and train and make the next guy better and you get better and you train. And the only metric you have are training scenarios and someone grading your training scenario. But now everything's on the line and you're crossing line of departure and you know like it was horrible word because you'd be in the back you loaded into these sardine cans and so the amtraks are um amphibious yeah so those are the ones that can splash down uh ship to shore capability um and, and they've, they've been several iterations yeah um god how they held together uh, god bless amtraks because they, they got us there i mean not all of them because we execute what's called the bump plan. I think at the end we had somehow squeezed like forty-two people into one Amtrak. Some some guy like three seats down was tying on this boot while the guy's three seats that way is fixing your other boot. It was that was it was good to be a machine gunner because then once we got past that point, obviously we crossed and buttoned up and you know for the chemical and the artillery and all that threat that we had. Once we were able to open up the top, then me and my gunner was like, yeah, we're going up top. We'll, we'll, we'll do flank security since the guns are covering the front and uh, we'll get up there and we'll get a bit of fresh air. So a little, bit, a little bit of profit there, a little bit of, you know, not getting stuck down at the bottom. So that was good. But it it was probably, and I, I find later on in life, I've got a really bad memory and uh, we'll, we'll get into that later. But I can remember so many details and not, not, not just the bad stuff, but just abstract memories from that time that are just so vivid that come with i mean smells shapes colors like the whole thing's there and i still get it now yeah and yeah. I, I i'm sure i'm sure most people do it's not me trying to you know sound special but I, I find it insane how the body can hold on to that at the at the sacrifice of like so many other memories and it i, I cherish that because there's so many good ones that are there as well with with really great people but it, it's one of the things I really find special that we that we can kind of hold on to those memories, um, good with the bad. Um, yeah, it's one of the things that it's kind of hard to hard to think about sometimes. So you push over the line of departure. Mm. You're pushing along in your own track. You're up top, top cover with your uh, number two or number one on your machine gun. He might as well be called number one. He was arguably better than me and getting more trigger <laughs> time. So he's the better of the two of us for sure. Okay, so you're pushing forward inevitably. Yeah, Star we're going Wars. somewhere. The, the, yeah, we're the, going somewhere. The uh, the Star Wars effect happens with Tracer. Yeah, yeah, it's and it's 
I mean, and, and it dulls the senses after a while, but the, the first few go rounds and, uh, you know, you, you didn't get really, we had a few get out, a few contacts. There were skirmishers, you know, at one point we're like online, there was some Republican guard. Um, when we first cross, we get the word like, t- and this is the bad word, like you gas up, you know, gas mask on, gas mask off, all clear. But when we're crossing, right, so everyone's, we're all looking at each other, you know, no gas mask on. Like, okay, you know, we'll get the word anytime now. It's about 20 minutes later. Um, the troop commander that was sat in the seat with the radio and all that turns around with his gas mask on saying all clear. Oh, thanks, bud. <laughs> we're looking at each other like, what? So this whole time, we, you know, we kind of sat there just kind of wondering what was going on. And he didn't feel like passing the word. To the rest of us, we might want to put on a gas mask. That was that was really cool. But yeah, there was, there was a few lights displays, both outgoing and you know incoming, and we kind of stopped off uh, the oil fields first. Oil fields were on fire, so there's so many visual things going on. And you know, I mean, other units probably you know had it as bad or worse than us. Uh, it's not saying it was you know like Mogadishu cracking off, but you know we we had we had skirmishers and conflicts moving up, some room clears. Some street clears, uh, moving up towards, you know, moving up Route 1, inevitably uh, going to Baghdad, yeah. What was your, um, from that whole deployment or that invasion, what was your, mo- what's like your most prominent memory of it? That, I don't know how the human body, and this is not me trying to talk it up, but genuinely I don't remember more than 30 minutes of sleep at a time. I don't know if it was just the, like, I felt like a permanent adrenaline high. Um, and there's other, like, memories that you come up with, with, you know, based on your job and what you're doing there. But, like, how the human body operated off of, because, you know, we're running out of water. So you had, like, a canteen a day, lucky to have half an MRE. You know, you get down to it and you're, like, stealing the humanitarian rations that you're meant to be handing out just because you, you need the calories. You, you, you're going down and. You know, you're living in mop level um, uh, four, some, you know, some some extent of it. So you're, you're, you're fully all, all the way up to your gas mask at some point, And you're living in this NBC suit. And, and you can smell yourself clearly. And you've been in and out of water and puddles and the sweat. Like, you know, this thing is no longer working. It's gone past its, you know, life shelf. You've been in it for like three weeks at this time. Uh, on the on the movement up and you're like all right why am i still wearing this (laughs) that's probably one of my most prominent memories is i stink i can smell myself this thing is not working um but just the with nothing but training no real experience other than training to be able to push through and do some of the the things that we did uh just based off the drills and the training we had it's probably one of the biggest memories i have but yeah like the human body is amazing that's that's all it is it's we aren't amazing. It's just the human nature and the spirit, I think, is, is incredible. Yeah. I, I, the, only, I, the only real memory I have, well, I, I remember quite a lot of it, but it was the first time I thought I was going to die. See, I had the benefit of the helicopter. So I was I was good already, right? <laughs> if it was going to happen, it should have happened already. Right, this is a fly, <laughs> this, this is similar. This is a flying story. Oh dear. So we are uh, we're all packed into a C one thirty, and we're flying out into the uh, into the northern Iraq desert. This is what I remember. So, so if, if you were a U.S. Marine, you could have made a song about that and sing it when you run around. Probably. Yeah, it'd been a great. But I'd probably sound an idiot because I can't <laughs> sing. <laughs> Me too. 
and uh, we were, we were, we'd gone over the border, so we were in Iraq, and we were flying to the, towards the northern desert, and uh, we were all packed in there. We had, um, you know, an, anti-tank uh, Milan yeah. with us. We had, you know, the 50 cal, so the 50 caliber machine guns with the tripods and all the other bits Loaded and bobs. Bear. Ammunition. Um, our job was to secure a desert ALARP, which is um, uh, a aviation landing strip for um, oh, helos yeah. and um, C-130s. That, that was the job. And um, we were flying along and all of a sudden, all the lights and the noise got boo, 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 oh. inside. And I was like, oh my <laughs> God, look, I've got goosebumps yeah. again. A surface to air missile had been launched at the C-130. Yes. All the chaff went out of it. And there was like, there, there was the whole company. So like, you know, 60, 70 guys all crammed into the back of a C-130 with all of their kit and equipment. And this thing was banking. It was going, it was dropping to the, 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 the height and the, uh, and the elevation. Yeah, no lost. chance, bud. Mate, I was like... And there was absolutely nothing, nothing you can do. What are you going to do? do? You just sat there like that going, oh my God. I, I, hope, I, I Do you know what? Hats off to the, uh, I think he was an RAF pilot. Hats off to him because we didn't get hit. Obviously, because I'm still here. Yeah, yeah. Otherwise, I wouldn't be doing this podcast. Happy. Um, but yeah, that was the first time I ever like went, yeah. There's one of my cat lives gone. Yeah, see, I'll take an Amtrak any day because you can blow it up, but at least it's not going to crash and like firing, you know, ball of horribleness. We were looking at each other, going, "Oh my god!" Yeah, I'll, I'll take the sar- <laughs> I'll take the sar- I'll take the sardine can. I've already had one bad experience up in the air. I don't want a second. Yeah, yeah. So I, I can imagine, especially that helplessness. Um, all we would hear were the ping off the metal. You're like, "Oh, what's that?" Oh, I guess we're going out. Yeah. But um, I know uh, we've got 20 minutes left, and uh, so I know you've got to shoot, shoot off. So one of the things that you did want to talk about is a little bit about mental health and stuff like that. So we'll do that now. Yeah, let, let, right, let's yeah. do it now, and, and we can. Uh, you know, we've got to. Um, we've only got to 2003. We're at 2020 oh, now, yeah. mate. So Good uh, God. you know, we can we can do a couple of parts of this if you want. Yeah. So I I think the the good point to transition with that would be um, so 2003. Um, we'll just fast forward a bit Iraq because I think we know how that clearly made it through that. Um, but one that I struggled with is um, actually, and I ended up uh, ended up leaving. You know, obviously got into Baghdad, and we'll cover that one a little bit later because that that's probably one of the craziest things that have ever happened to me. But we, I, I got back, and I, once again, I left uh, like uh, I think two weeks, maybe, maybe a bit more earlier. Um, from Iraq, I got what's called a Red Cross message. So essentially, the man that raised me, my grandfather, uh, passed away. So, arguably one of the worst memories I have from that um, that deployment. I remember it. You know, Chaplain Cash at the time, big chap, like stackers football playing dude, but was just like a, like a teddy bear, heart of gold. Came across and. Um, I happened to be at the CP at the time. They're like, oh, Chaps wants to talk to you. Chaplain wants to talk to Padre over here. Wants to talk to you. Um, okay, cool. I was a lay reader at the time, so which is like if you're in the platoon, you can kind of help the guys and maybe deliver a bit of sermon at the time. So I'm like, oh, it's something to do with that. No big deal. No 
no thought at all going in and uh, kind of hands me a piece of paper, doesn't let me look at it. He's like, you know, I just want to tell you that, you know, you know your grandfather passed. You know, straight, short to the point, it's kind of what you needed. You don't really flap about with that, I don't think. I think he did it the best way he could. I think it grips me is, uh, is like the second, there's like an audible pause after he said it. And it was like an audible pause, enough for me to digest it, to absorb it, and call the prayer hit. And I, I, can, I can just feel the revulsion I felt at that moment of just being in that scenario and being helpless and like, right, I can't, you know, my grandmother's back home and family's dealing with all this and, you know, how do I deal with this? How do I, and then to have that soundtrack come on, doing what we were doing at the time created its own adversities. So I, I sat on it, I think for two days um, and because of where we were at and because we'd already consolidated uh, Baghdad we kind of locked that down. Statue had already been pulled down. They're like, they were already talking about retrograding. I was like, well, this was an easy job. And I, I kind of asked, you know, a bit my command, you know, what I should do, this, that, and the other. And there's probably, and I'm, I'm not the first person to go through the struggle, obviously, but the struggle of leaving your unit, your family, to go help and deal with your other families, arguably one of the hardest struggles I've been through and, you know, I'm still on the fence, you know, some days as far as I do the right thing, you know, how much help did I give my grandmother versus what could I have still done? And I think there was like one or two dust ups after that. Um, after that point, we didn't lose anybody else. So, um, what impact would I really had? But at that time, that, that anguish, I think, uh, was arguably one of the hardest things I've done. But I got back, and like five months later, um, I didn't know what I was going to do. And I just woke up one day, and I was a civvy. So I was a civilian again. So you've got to re-enlist. And uh, my, uh, my first sergeant at the time, which retired Sergeant Major Nell, uh, Converse, really good dude. Uh, so when I worked in the company office uh, at the time, it was his name's Luke. Uh, my name's Bo. And I don't know if you've ever seen a show called Dukes of Hazard, but there was there was the company office funny there. Uh, and he's a really good guy. Uh, he really helped me out uh, in a lot of ways um, just by just by talking to me at that time. And uh, we get back and we, we kind of got to figure out, we stabilize and like, he's like, you know, we're going back. I need to know. You got to tell me. I was like, literally, I was meant to EAS in I think like three weeks and I still had made a decision. He's like, well, I guess I'll get out. And there was my second anguish decision. And why I made that decision, you know, I, I kind of was seeing somebody at the time, you know, white picket fence, maybe in my future, you know, 2.5 kids and a dog. I don't know where my head was at, but uh, I made the decision to, to get out of the Marine Corps. I, was, I just turned 21, arguably legal in all things now. So there's a funny one for you. Two deployments um, during the invasion of, uh, Iraq and a Baghdad come back, promote to corporal. I still can't buy a beer. So that's a really good feeling to be almost four years in the Marine Corps with two deployments when I'm in combat, to be a non-commissioned officer, think you got something about yourself and you can't go to the bar and buy a beer. So that was another one uh, for my, my headspace and timing. But I go outside with 
there was no transition back then. There was no, I'll do this, do that. Uh, there was no mental health um, transition. I mean, it wasn't even a thing back then, you know, just kind of shake it off. You know, maybe, maybe you go see the counselor or the chaplain and, it's still it's still the shell shock era, though, isn't it? I mean, yeah. yeah. I mean, you, I, I was I was listening, digressing a little bit, but I was listening to um, Joe Rogan yesterday, and he had uh, Oliver Stone. Mm, so Oliver yeah. Stone directed um, yeah. Platoon. He was in Vietnam. He yeah. was in the uh, he was in the first cavalry. So the uh, he's, done a, know, he's done a few chats for Congress and stuff like that. As yeah, well, yeah, like the story. His story is 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 absolutely amazing. Um, and, you know, he was very similar where he kind of got to the point where he'd done some tours, mm. you know, because he re-enlisted as well. And he stayed on um, three, three extra months before he was supposed to leave Vietnam. And he got back and he was kind of like in that position where, what what am I supposed to do? What now? And, and you know, I think especially if we convert that to modern day where, I mean, I've done 20 years and mm. I, did, I did, you know, I did the invasion of Iraq. I did, I did the first, um, you know, tours into Afghanistan back in 2001, finished my last one in 2012. But some guys just don't want to do that. They want to join up. They, they see all the war films and stuff like that and they go, right, I want a piece of that. And I've talked about this before. Yeah. Where once they get into, let's call it the shit, right, where they've yeah. got tracer rounds, their friends getting hit, it's just absolutely horrific. Yeah. The, the worst, the worst thing that probably you, you would ever see bar being a doctor or oh, a yeah. nurse God, in, in A and E, where 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 you're exposed to um, extreme horrific images. Nonstop. Yeah. Yeah. The, what you come back from from there is like, especially for some people, would be, why would I want to stay on and do that again? Yeah, I th- but it's it that's well, unless you're something seriously wrong, that's not you. I think you sign on for the glamour of what like the movie aspect, the special effects, but and you know. Uh, the feeling once you're there is not doing it because of that. It's the man, the man or the woman to the left and right. Yeah. And it trying to bring them home and that, that camaraderie you feel, I think that generates, I mean, we're, we're tribal by nature, you know, like being that true pack mentality, um, whether you want to believe it or not. It, I think that generates a mental health, Although it might be some dysfunctional at some levels, but I think it, it generates that family for some people that arguably never had it. And I think then having the culture shock of trying to find it is can be quite hard. So coming out of a four-year family to where I really probably finished developing, well, not finished, but I, I, I went through some large growing pains and learning adjustments to become, to arguably become a man and learn about being a better man and Marine, to then ha- not have that. Keep in mind, I think I'd, I'd, I'd only had one, like one actual payroll tax paying job, which I worked for Mc, like McDonald's assistant manager for a month when I was 16 before I went through my adversity. So I, I don't really have a, like a lot, a long resume going on here. So 21 year old 
I mean, man, now with not much job experience. I mean, you got the Marine Corps experience, and you know, America's still very patriotic at this time. So people are like, oh, hire veterans, hire veterans, which has probably helped me out. Uh, it's probably the only benefit I had going for me. But just refiguring out society is, you know, paying my own rent for the first time. You know, because military school, I didn't have to pay my own rent. Um, you know, taxes and. My wife listening now will be like, you still haven't figured out taxes, so shut up. So <laughs> she'll, she'll, uh, she'll have a funny on that one. But just really trying to sort out life for yourself was a bit strange for me because I still wasn't with my family. My family's back in Oklahoma, and I ended up, when I became a civilian, I was in uh, the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area of California, which is where I met my current wife, um, who tolerates me on a daily basis. So <laughs> God, God bless her. Um, but it, it was such a steep learning curve. And I'm not saying it's hard, but it's different. And it's different in a way where you're doing it on your own, where you might not have been told what to do, but you, you understand the network to where now you need to change your wiring. And there's, there's loads of guys that got out. And uh, well, obviously, I came back in. So uh, there's loads of guys that uh, I don't know that I, I failed to cope because, you know, I did all right. I didn't know how to pay a job. I was functioning. But. You miss certain things and maybe based on my choices that I made, I felt like I had more to give or I didn't accomplish everything I wanted to accomplish. Maybe the job wasn't done. And that's kind of where I was at. And, you know, I wore odd jobs and security bid, some armor car work, some personal security, a bounce in a bar, doing some door work, you know, just trying to to find myself really. Um, Loads of, you know, stupid stuff because... You're indoctrinated into a drinking culture at a young age and acting and saying certain things, as you know, uh, with your military friends is not really uh, a good way to uh, integrate yourself with most of society. So I struggled with that. And I was quite a young, you know, was a young guy anywhere working with some older guys. And the, where the job I worked at, the only really people that I was connecting with that would, you know, would get my jokes or you would have any... Um, rapport with or any banter were the Vietnam vets. So, and and there's a large generational gap there, but that's where I felt at home. And it it started to make me question, well, why is that? Well, obviously we, we draw on some military experiences, but why is it so easy for, you know, someone who grew up in a much different time and era to communicate and I don't know, just seamlessly transition over a cup of coffee um, with someone that was, you know, I was far junior to them and, you know, not only age, but arguably some of the military experiences that they had, you know, some things in Vietnam are just beyond, you know, discussion as far as what they, they experienced. And but it was just seamless. And it kind of made me think at the time, well, you know, why is that? And I've really evolved in my thought process as far as the pack or tribal mentality. And, you know, loads of people more educated than I have have written books on this and, you know, New Tribe and all of these other books that are out there. Um, And I I think it's something that we need to come to terms with um, is is determining there is a mental health. And it's it's always that like red flag word, mental health issue. It's it's just adjusting and finding integration. It's finding peace. Um, and, And you want to call it harmony. You want to call it, you know fluidity in your life there's so many terms for it it's just finding how to operate 
yourself, whether it's surfing, whether it's it, it's finding something that you can channel whatever issues or negative feelings you might be having. Well, you, you, what you're talking about there is you're looking for meaning. Yeah, yeah, there you go. You, you're 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 spending that much time. You have all these experiences with for guys for four years. It do, it doesn't change. You do words much gooder than me. <laughs> Trust me, I don't. <laughs> People who listen to this podcast know my vocabulary is pretty crap. Yeah, same. But um, the common bond, what you're talking about there as well, you know, you, I've had a similar experience where, you know, I was with a group of people um, in combat. I come back, I get, uh, I get injured, I come back, and then all of a sudden when I come back to the unit again, once I've been... Um, rehabilitated and all that sort of thing everybody's gone so I've lost that conformity oh yeah yeah that cohesion that you build with all those people the rapport um, you know the the, the the jovial banter you know the piss taking out of everybody and yeah. all that sort of thing um, so what you're talking about is well you know what, what I've experienced as well is where you know all of a sudden you're not in that element anymore and you and you don't have that, and you've got nowhere really to turn. So what you're talking about there, where you're going into bars and you're talking to these Vietnam vets, well, you, you might be confused about you know what it is that you see similarities, mm. but it, but it is the hardship, it is yeah. the combat, it, it's the, it's the same thing. Even though it might be like twenty or thirty years before, getting shot at, getting blown up, people trying to kill you. It's the same as it was back with a sword and a spear, oh, as it is yeah. now with with a rifle and indirect fire. So you know your um, your association with that. You probably thought it was a bit strange, but actually it really wasn't. It's the same thing, just a different time. Oh yeah, looking looking back now, you know you get the experience, and the years, and the understanding. It, it, it is easier now, but at the time I, it just felt strange. As a twenty one year old guy, it's like oh, you know. Yeah, you know, he's a Vietnam vet, but why is this so easy? And I didn't have the understanding at that point. And uh, I, I really struggled, not with like issues or, you know, you know, I think we, we all go through periods of time that were really hard. And the first year was really hard for me. And after that, it got, it, it got easier and it, it felt more normal. And I don't know if it's just because it was easier to focus on something else or if it just went away, but I I felt, and a lot of guys I've talked to, friends of mine that are outside now that have gone civilian, they feel it too. It's, you just are missing something you didn't have before. I think that's focus though as well. Yeah. So, you know, without stereotyping again, the majority of people that leave, some of them will probably turn to alcohol because they don't think they can find anything else to fill that void. Yeah. So where I, again, talk selfishly here from a personal experience, where I started surfing, and I'm going to use it, the analogy because it's what I do, it's what I enjoy, it's kind of a passion of mine. Whenever I look for surf forecasts or I'm talking to my friends and stuff like that, you, you have that bond, but I've also have something to focus on, the same as jiu-jitsu as well. You know, with grappling, you're grappling with another human being, you know, and you've got something to focus on. You've got something to look forward to. Now, if you, if, again, what we're talking about, leaving the military, if you don't have something to grasp onto, 
mentally you're not going to have anything to focus on and you're going to focus on the negative things and the past things as opposed to look forward to the future. So, you know, trying to get, I don't know, I'm not a psychologist, but getting somebody who's been in that situation, who has that mentality where they don't really know where to turn, probably finding something for them to focus on, whether it's, I don't know, making model planes or whatever. Right. You know, giving, giving them a focal point to, to, to focus on apart from their daily day-to-day life that they might think is mundane will probably help them a lot more than it would be then to go and, at the end of the day, let's go and crack a couple of crates of Stella or Bud or something like yeah. that and drown your sorrows and think about the past. And, you know, you're and not going to go anywhere there. That usually starts as a good idea. It sounds like a good idea, but it's not usually the most healthy thing. Absolutely. Not. You know, having a plan would probably have been a good help to me. But I had none of that. I had no plan. I figured I'd figure it out. And, you know, clearly it didn't work. Uh, or, you know, I still wanted something else. So um, I didn't find the solution to that till much later in life. Um, so it just kind of, I kind of pushed it to the wayside as, as many people do when they're struggling with hardship. They're like, right, let me just focus on something else. So my focus on something else was to come back in the Marine Corps, which I did in 2007. So I did about three years uh, on the outside and I came back in. So you were a professional floater. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I just, uh, you know, I'll go do something else. Uh, I'll go give that a crack again. Why not? Um, but yeah, yeah, I, I came back in in 07. And uh, the monitor, which is kind of like our branch advisor, he, you know, I had to wait around for them to reconstruct and pull my sorry butt out of the archives. He calls me up and he's like, right, you know, I've got, I've got orders for you. You've got a choice. I was like, okay. He's like, I'm going to send you either to uh, 29 Palms, which you've been to, and I'm sure you, you can, you know, testi- testimony on how great of a place that might be to live for four years. It's so beautiful. Yeah, yeah. Beautiful, scenic, <laughs> yeah, great weather. Um, Nothing wrong with being dry, right? Yeah. It's a, it's, a, it's a great place to train, and it's a, it's a great place to make a good fighting unit. And I'll, I'll give 29 Palms that. It's an amazing place. But it's a shithole. Yeah, it's not where I wanted to be at the time. It's not where I wanted to be, especially when he told me my other option was Hawaii. So I kind of I had a pause, and I, you know, I'd been a civilian for three years, and you know, it might have been a bit necky or you know, a bit disrespectful at the time. I was like, was that a real question? So I'll, I'll take Hawaii if that's okay. So I ended up going to Hawaii and doing off and on between, um, did one more Iraq, did one more Afghan, and uh, did four years there. That's what, I, I got introduced to surfing there. I tried it once in California, but I was probably drunk at the time. But uh, I really got introduced to a little bit to surfing, nowhere near your level, but enough to where I can stand up on a longboard and have a bit of fun, and which my uncoordinated self is longboards where I'm staying. <laughs> that's that's where I'm staying. That and stand up paddleboard. That's my limits. I know my left and right lateral limits. I'm staying there. Hey man, you're riding boards, so hey. that, that's all it's about, right? Yeah, but I also find I'm a, I'm a little bit prissy when it comes to the water temperature. So I haven't done it a whole lot since Hawaii. Maybe I just need to go back there. Maybe I don't know. We'll we'll see. I'll I'll test it out. Yeah, I wish I had that luxury. Yeah, yeah just yeah. go back to Hawaii. Just, it's just fine. Go. Yeah, <laughs> but I ended up there, and uh, some people don't like it. Some people do. Um, but I really started to understand mental health a bit more there. And um, do you want to get into that a bit later? Mate, 
I know you've got to cut away, so what we'll do is we'll uh, we'll do a second part to this. I'd um, love to. Super interesting. I, f- I feel like I've talked about everything up into the point where I want to talk about. Yeah. But it, and I think it's weird, um, you know, talking about yourself and uh, looking back. I, I can't wait to hear this because I'm probably just going to sound like an idiot. But it, it's it, it's crazy. It, it, it's just a chat over a you know a cup of coffee or you know. A horrible Monster. drink. Yeah, hey, <laughs> I'll, I'll do the American stereotype, but there is no sugar. Let's just be honest. Um, but it's, I think it's good. Um, and I think it, it, if anybody is listening that can get past my horrible accent that, uh, or is back home and can get past yours, then I, I think it's, it's important one because it's two essentially different cultures. As similar as we are, we're as dissimilar in the same aspects to sit across and talk about arguably very, very similar scenarios and experiences. And I think that's what's important to unite not only our two branches, two dudes that, you know, met and consider you, you know, a real close friend of mine since I've been here and absolutely helped get me through one of, we'll get to there in one of the podcasts, uh, one of the most interesting courses I've been on on a short on a short notice. Yeah, I've seen some pretty weird faces coming out of it. Oh, uh, hey, what? Just right now, I'm sure they're on camera. <laughs> just in uh, general, yeah, really. just in general. It's um, it's not it's not easy to look at. It's a good thing. It's it's unfortunate there is video associated with this because I do have a face made for a podcast, so I'm happy with that. Yeah, I get told that a lot. It's <laughs> a good thing, thing we're there. Gunny Hancock, thank you very much for your time. Um, we will do this again. Thanks, brother. Appreciate it. And that's it. Thanks to Gunnery Sergeant Bo Hancock for his insights there. And if you like the podcast, please like and share and also leave a review on your podcast provider. Thanks for listening. Mm